Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Inez Stepman. She's a journalist, she's a senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum and the host of the podcast High Noon. We spoke about the fact that even though Inez promotes policy that is in the interests of women, she describes herself as an anti-feminist and actually attributes to feminism a lot of negative consequences that we're seeing playing out in the culture. In the extended version of the podcast, we also spoke about whether or not feminism is really primarily in the interest of single women, whether or not that's a that's a good thing, and also whether or not one ought to follow the Mike Pence rule, whether you're male or female. That extended version of the podcast is available at louiseperry.substack.com, where you can also find bonus episodes and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. Inez, do you want to just start by explaining to anyone listening who's not come across you, just who you work for, your brief background, etc., your bio? Yeah, well, it's it's funny. Um, I'm every time there's money deposited in my bank account, I'm shocked that I get paid to do what I do, uh, <laughs> which seems to be some strange uh, combination of of uh, research and um, kind of like being an academic, but without any students or. And then uh, the annoying bits of being an academic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no. So I, I work for a great organization called Independent Women's Forum. Um, We're a organization, the only mission of which is to actually try to seriously improve the lives of women. In, and we mean that in the most like serious way possible, as opposed to all of the things that say that they're speaking on behalf of women. Right. Um, you know, how, how do we make women's lives better, right? How do we make, uh, construct a society that actually does make women's lives measurably better? Um, which you could say, I guess, is a feminist goal. But um, so we do it, there's a, a full like sort of spectrum of policies. It's kind of like, it's a think tank, but we have a, we're much more media facing. Um, I think we're, last I checked, we're on TV three three times a day. Like somebody from the organization is on television three times a day. That's a lot. <laughs> Yeah, we're only like 30 people or 40 people. So, um, and, and only a certain percentage are, you know, working in policy or, or public facing. So I think we punch well above our weight. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've been really proud to be with the organization. We've, we've come up with some creative policy, I, I think, um, proposals that have been out of the box. Like, for example, we're, we've been at the forefront of putting together a paid leave proposal, um, in the United States that actually, uh, essentially just make social security more flexible. So like allows women, so obviously it hasn't passed, but um, there's a lot of interest I think in it. And it just, anyway, this is this, I think this speaks very much about uh, to what the organization is about um, that is budget neutral because it just allows women the option to let's say retire a year later and take social security while their children are newborn or young. Oh, that's um, interesting. Right. So like, yeah. I, I think it, it just, makes a lot of sense right there's Mm. a lot of situations where you would desperately want that time with a paycheck right when your Mm. children are extremely young as opposed to you know and retirement age anyway is not we live longer we're healthier for longer a lot of us don't you know do uh, intensive physical labor jobs especially women Um, anyway I think it makes a lot of sense I think it really represents the organization it's a long way of saying these are the kind of things that um, IWF does. I didn't know about that, and that's really interesting. So, so the idea is that you kind of give women a pension, like a state pension, but during what would be their maternity leave. 
is that the proposal? Right. I mean, I don't really understand the American pension system necessarily because I think perhaps it's actually more more generous, but also more dependent on income than the UK system, which is where you just get given a flat sum pretty much as long as you've paid national insurance contributions. Um, so what kind of what kind of figure would you be looking at in terms of what women are likely to get per year if it were to pass? I'm sorry, I'm just grilling you immediately on like hard policy. <laughs> I am a policy person, but in education and uh, certain connected subjects in law, but uh, this is beyond me. I'm not an expert in social security. Um, so I don't know, but it is dependent, as you say, it's dependent on your income, but it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's already written in. So um, social security, all of the, 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 the formula for how they calculate that is already written in. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's, it, this proposal doesn't really touch that at all. It just basically allows you to take, as you guys would say across the pond, take your pension while you want, uh, want, want to as maternity leave. Um, that's, it. that's really clever. Yeah, I'd not come across that as a proposal. That's really clever. Because I've I've often reflected on the fact that, at least in this country, the amount that a couple gets per year from the pension is about the same cost as uh, a daycare, full-time daycare fees in London, which the state does not contribute towards. I mean, I maybe we'll get into this. I don't necessarily think that full-time daycare is, is by any means the best solution to early years care, but also, you know, it's kind of stark, isn't it, that the state are willing to dole out money for you based on age at one end of your life but not at the other so yeah yeah like, really likewise i don't understand the the uk system and i know generally of course um we we have fewer social benefits in america yeah although i'm not even sure sometimes that that's true we have a more piecemeal and convoluted social safety net that it seems in some way the worst of all worlds and that I think it seems like you need a PhD to understand what is actually available, um, but is not actually measurably smaller <laughs> mm. or uh, in, in any case. Um, I certainly think it's, it's, I'm, I'm, I think that we're due for a rethink on a lot of these issues from the right. Um, not because it's not true that excess government, uh, can step in for family. And I, I think actually part of the new right gets some of this wrong in, in, in the sense that I think it's prosperity that really drives atomization and and fiscal comfort that drives atomization, not capitalism for, for sort of capitalist reasons, but because it produces that kind of wealth. Mm. It's like a revealed preference that actually people, people choose isolation right. when they can afford it. Right. And yeah. the, the same kind of incentive can be created by the welfare system, right? Mm-hmm. Um, starting Social Security in the United States, um, look, it, it, it relieved people of the necessity of, of having children to not starve in your old age, for example, right? Um, and I'm not saying we want to go back to letting people starve on the street, but I think one of the problems that, that we haven't figured out what to do to replace what incentive... Yeah. towards family and community to replace uh, the fear of destitution. Um, because as you say, it's a revealed preference for us. It's not always pleasant to be in a family or a relationship, right? Like it's, it's, um, it constrains you in a very meaningful way. And at some time, at some points that will be extremely unpleasant, even in a good, I'm talking about not abusive situations or something. Mm. I'm saying even a good family marriage community is going to be up in your business in ways that is not are 
is not pleasant sometimes. Um, And so people do have this revealed preference, but then we see all of the, the downsides of how we've, we've become so isolated from each other and, and so um, individualistic that that seems to me to be the project of the modern age is what to replace that fear of destitution that forced people together. Just like we need a, a replacement for, for faith on a societal level, we need a replacement for that kind of fear of destitution. I don't know if either one of those things is possible, but that seems to me the problem and the project of the modern age. Yeah, and a really difficult one. I think what I, I, I think that people have this revealed preference for atomization um, during young adulthood. I think that that's the point where people are most likely to feel heavily constrained by family and want out. And you know, I wrote an essay about this recently. I, I think that to some extent, the fact that um, Anglo culture in particular, it, you know, I'm including like WASP American culture, was particularly willing early on to permit people to abandon their extended families and migrate and be independent entrepreneurs and whatever, I'm sure contributed to the enormous success of Anglo culture and the expansionism of it. But the costs are right down the line that it's kind of fun to be independent and atomized when you're in your 20s and 30s or 40s, but then um, it's not fun to be atomized when you're in your 70s and 80s. And how do people, you know, how do people claw back the extended network once they've rejected it? They kind of can't. So, so this, which is why we invented the welfare state to deal with this problem. I, I'm obsessed with the idea that um, the impulse towards wokeism, for lack of a better term, in the United States is the same impulse that put us on the moon. Interesting. Go on. <laughs> I, I, which I think is a sort of similar idea. The reason I bring it up is a similar idea of what you're alluding to, which is. Uh, American, if, if anything in my mind defines American culture, it is actually the rejection of limits. And America is a country that has blown past what other, what other countries have said is impossible mm. many, many times, um, including having a continuous written constitution for 250 years, right? Um, the longest, as far as I'm aware, the longest con- contiguous um, political system that hasn't like you know obviously america is a young country but we're an old regime if that makes sense right france is very old but has had five regimes in the meantime Mm. um and i think you guys might have this the the claim to in some way a continuous regime but that's about slow evolution right yeah depending on whether the english civil war is kind of your cutoff or the norman invasion i think we're probably beating you but yes point taken but america has excelled at, at doing the impossible of, of creating a empire of liberty as uh thomas jefferson imagined um and i i think this is this kind of limitlessness or the feeling of limitlessness or the imagination of limitlessness has allowed america to become incredibly prosperous mm-hmm. uh to do things that no country in history has ever done um but it is hard to see how that that is not connected, for example, to the idea that like, oh, well, of course you can be whoever you want to be and do whoever you want, what you have, whatever you want to do, including a man. If you want to be a woman, why why are we going to constrain that that desire? Um, and of course, it's gotten much worse because that American impulse of individuality and limitlessness was once balanced in our culture by a, 
a deep kind of Protestant uh, skepticism about the nature of man and skepticism of, of human desire. Uh, and as that's fallen away, all we've been left with is this sense of, of always overcoming limits. And um, so, cause I, I think that maybe Anglo, I think Anglo culture sort of similarly has the, had this balance of between forces that are, are not contradictory to each other so much as intention. And as one piece of that has fallen away, the, the uh, Protestant ethos and um, kind of a, a understanding of man's nature is not of the angels, right? Um, a, a understanding of original sin or whatever, whatever one wants to call that tradition that it really has um, put the other piece of our culture on steroids, whereas both things in balance worked quite well together and, and were very productive together um, and, and created, I think, the best sort of material conditions for man and, and not just material conditions, free conditions, right? Uh, um, and yet that was balanced by a very, very strong uh, self-control in certain ways. And now there is no, <laughs> not only there's no self-control, which, you know, ever, anyone can be, have a lack of self-control with regard to certain things, but a um <laughs> a rejection of the idea that one ought to have self control about anything yeah yeah and i think without those that kind of delicate balance of almost like cultural temperament you go off the rails very quickly i think also to some extent the um we're seeing what happens when you have a very long period of peace and affluence kind of applied to american culture and British culture too. I think that, that they are essentially very similar. Um, that this, uh, we've kind of got right to the tippy top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and now people are worrying about their gender identities. And that just wasn't like available um, for most of our country's history. So it, it never really came up. You mentioned, so going back to um, the IWF, the way that you describe the mission to me sounds sort of like definitionally feminist, you know, advancing the interests of women, essentially in the kind of practical ways that we've discussed a little bit already. And yet you will, I have heard you describe yourself as an anti-feminist. I don't know that IWF does, but I have, you, you personally have described yourself as an anti-feminist. And this is one of the things I really wanted to get into on the show. I know that we're basically going to end up arguing about definitions, but I think it's, I think it's a worthwhile argument to have because I am, I'm so regularly asked, like, do you still define yourself as a feminist or, or, or something along those lines? And I always give the answer kind of a qualified yes. So let's get into it. Yeah. So th there's a couple of reasons. One, first of all, um, I have plenty of colleagues who would identify themselves as feminists, of course, with mm -hmm. all of the qualifications that you just gave, right? Mm -hmm. um, that uh, they deeply object to what feminism has become, but they create a separation Mm -hmm. let's say sometime, you know, different places, right? Some, some of them in the forties, some of them in the seventies. Um, my rejection of feminism is not actually an assertion of a trad ethos at all. Um, although I think there are certain things that were very wise about whatever, what might be called trad ethos. Uh, my central objection to feminism is the social construction theory. Mm -hmm. And there are some exceptions, you know, throughout, like, let's say the last 150 or 200 years of feminism 
um, going all the way back to like Wollstonecraft and so on. Uh, but they all seem to me to get this wrong. And there's some exceptions. Obviously, Polly is an exception to this, but but there are, I'm sure there are women who were feminist thinkers or writers that I just haven't read who don't buy into this constructionist premise. But it appears real early, even in Wollstonecraft or, or even the the idea that we are, that society is somehow impressing femininity on women, um, that it's not a natural outspring of our biology, uh, but that it's created by society. And, and then the, the implication is we need to uncreate it. Um, and I, I simply don't agree with that basic, either side of that basic premise, right? So one, that the differences between men and women are meaningfully socially constructed. Of course, there are many ways we can order society that either amplify certain things or, or, um, you know, uh, or challenge nature in certain ways. Uh, you know, in some sense, all civilization is built in opposition to nature, right? But, um, but I, I, the idea that these differences are created by society, I find just, I just reject that. I, on more than anything, on a scientific basis, an observational basis. And to the second piece, I even if it were true that let's say, and and, and of course it's it's trivially true that a society you could. Uh, amplify the differences between the sexes and think about Victorian era or there are definitely societies and civilizations that amplify the differences between the sexes. Actually, you know, the edge of starvation is a, a, a point where society de-amplifies the difference between the sexes, right? Um, some of the smallest pay gaps in the world are in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but so it's not, it seems to me to be a trivial point that of course society, you know, does shape how we act out or perform our roles as men or women. Um, but to me, the whole point is, okay, so how do we construct a society that honors the natural differences between men and women? How do we construct a society that flourishes where, you know, and obviously there's no utopian ideal here, but uh, how do we construct a society in which more people are fulfilled, have meaning in their lives, are virtuous, right? Um, and so to the extent that social construction exists, I think it's a good thing if it's a good social construction, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I just disagree with the entire project of trying to uh, deconstruct the differences between men and women. One, I think it's an impossible one um, because those differences run so so deep biologically. And by the way, as much, you know, sort of above the neck as below. And I think I actually took that phrase from you uh, at some <laughs> point. I heard you say it maybe on my podcast, but um, it's I a great way of expressing. That, yeah. <laughs> A, I had this exact argument um, a few weeks ago on the podcast with Holly Lawford-Smith, who takes the diametrically opposite view to you. She is very, she's like a hard social constructivist. I think that I'm a, I think that I'm a weak social constructivist in that I think there is some truth to the idea that, I mean, as you say, like, <laughs> I'm like a weak social constructivist and I think it's a good thing or it can potentially be a good thing. I think that it's clearly true that we can nudge, culture can nudge people in gendered ways and that it ought to furthermore. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is, um, another idea that I've found objectionable, which comes from the more sane part of the feminist spectrum. Let's say something like Christina Hoff Summers, a lady like Christina Hoff Summers, mm -hmm. who I admire has done great work. Um, I've had, I've had her at IWF. Like we had a panel about this with her. She was fantastic, uh, that I put together in New York a couple of years ago. But, uh, so this is not a, a knock on her, I, but I just simply disagree with, 
the answer can't be everyone go his or her own way, right? Um, this is a denial of the way that our desires are even formed or how we imagine archetypes or um, what we want or what the good life is. Uh, mm. We reflect back what people around us are are valuing and, and striving for. Um, I don't think society can be neutral on the question of what it is to be a good man or a good woman. I don't think it can be like there is any way to be a woman. I mean, again, this is sort of trivially, trivially true in the sense that we know that there are many different personalities and um, many different you know, facets to every single person, whether they're and being a man or a woman is an important piece, but not like we know that there are certain universal things we have in common, right? All of these things are, they're not trivial facts, but they seem to me to be tr like obvious and trivially true. Mm. Um, but I think the idea that everyone go their own way, we need a script for society. And, and mm. in fact, society always will have a script. There is no neutral place um, for society to land. And the script we have right now for women, for what it is to be a good woman, is antithetical to biology and makes a lot of people miserable. And that that seems to me to be a tragedy. Like, that is something that, to your point, we we do nudge people. We are right now nudging women into a life script that does not leave room for the things that make them happy. Mm. This is uh, th so. Um, we're speaking uh, a week, just over a week after I did this debate in LA, um, organized by Barry Weiss and the Free Press, which is yet to be the audio has yet to be released. I'm assured that it will be. I don't know if they're releasing the whole video, but they're, they're going to release the audio as a as a podcast episode. Honestly, um, and I, 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 I said almost precisely what you've just said as part of my that the idea of promoting liberation as a good in and of itself leaves no space for, for there being a template and for saying that templates are good, actually. The challenge of it, of course, is that there are always going to be anomalous individuals who, for whatever reason, find the template very ill-suited to them. And what do, we, what do we do about that is a difficult question. And particularly when anomalous individuals are more likely to end up in decision-making positions. Like, like, for instance, more, women with more sort of masculine temperaments are more likely to end up at senior positions in, say, politics. Um, for instance, women who are less inclined to want to have children, women who are less agreeable, things like that. Those more unusual women, therefore, end up making there's a tendency for them to assume that that is a universal disposition among women and to make decisions accordingly. But it isn't. Equally, though, if we were to say, well, we're going to sort of impose, we're going to impose even legislatively a template for life for women, which is best suited to women with a more feminine temperament, women with a more typical temperament, those, other, those anomalous women are going to be unhappy about that. And I don't really know, I don't know if there's a way of resolving that except with a sort of healthy degree of hypocrisy built like built in so i have, I, have a, I think the best answer given to that question is Polly is um that i've come across but and it's also a question that i've thought about a lot but um first i i want to note something i very much agree with what you just said about women of essentially not more masculine although it's rare to really be of masculine tem temperament as a mm. woman but 
women who are more comfortable in masculine spaces that I, I probably am that type of disagreeable and that I don't know if that's being uh, masculine or just being half Jewish. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, I, I think what people now bandy about is the longhouse, right? Uh, really ramped up when all women went to work and went into public spaces, right? Because the initial wave of women who went to work in male spaces or went, and I don't just mean work, like also like public spaces, there was this separation yeah. of public and private and women had more power in the private domain, men more in the public. Um, and when women went into the male side of like the, the male spaces, whether that's in work or just in, in sort of the public domain in politics, whatever, the initial wave of them were Maggie Thatcher's, right? Mm. And so the longhouse or, or the, the ramping up of that came when the feminine women mm. were told to go to work and they didn't want to be in an environment where that was harsh and, um, and where relations between people and um, production goals and stuff like that was all very direct and masculine. Mm. Like that felt very mean. And instead of concluding like, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe the purpose of the company should be this kind of masculine oriented produce X widgets. If you don't produce them, then there are consequences. And if you do produce more of them, you get a reward and it's very direct and leaves room for sort of success. And even in some uh, attenuated way, glory, right? Um, women don't like, like feminine women mm. don't like to be under that kind of pressure, stresses them out. And so they transformed it into, they transformed that culture. So I, I think that's, um, there's always that that initial wave. It's the same thing with like a, my husband's father is a firefighter and like the women who end up as firefighters still now, right? Like they're 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 tough ladies, right? They yeah. they are actually not long host how uh, long housing the the firehouse, right? Um no. they're able to hang with the boys. But the the answer I think the to the the question that you're posing which is deeper than or more important at least um about essentially what to do with the exceptions. Mm. One, I feel like we live under a tyranny of exceptions. People mm. are incapable of hearing an argument without immediately objecting with an exception as though mm. that disproves the argument. Uh, we have no tolerance for exceptions at all. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm I'm sort of exhausted by the exceptions in a way. Which is uh, also kind of a longhousey. I'm, I'm reminded of when I, I spoke at, at, at some event last year and I mentioned, I was just talking about the fact of certain traits being normally distributed and I refer to people being abnormal and the lady in the audience objected to me using the word abnormal and I said well I'm using it in like quite a you know almost a technical way, yeah. way yeah and also I like definitionally if someone isn't if someone is clustered at the tails they're abnormal and she and she was uh, she wasn't having it because it was mean basically I said, is there a word I can use and she said no, essentially, like there isn't, like it's not permissible to talk about people being somehow outside of the typical range because I guess it risks hurting feelings. And it's so much that, I mean, I have some sort of skepticism about the longhouse idea, which maybe we can get onto, but th that to me was so much the kind of morality of the, of the, of the kindergarten teacher, which you yeah. see being imposed on adult institutions. Yeah. Um, I think that's definitely absolutely in evidence but even even men are doing it now though mm. 
You know, yeah. you, you make a generalized argument. So not even in an individual emotional way, but you make a generalized argument. And the first thing that comes up is, but what about mm. this kind of person? What about this outlier? Mm. So first of all, I sort of reject being domineered by the exception. Mm -hmm. um, but it is an important question because obviously there are always going to be people who are don't fit into the script. Right now, the people who are made immiserated by the script are like 80% of women. But, mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah. there will be um, people who are immiserated by a more uh, like a, a more biological uh, sort of sex differences based script as well. Um, and here I do think like the idea of the mainstream and the counterculture, we have lost the division between mainstream and counterculture. Mm. And I always refer to this essay that Palia wrote about a sort of seemingly different subject, but I think it applies very well here, which I think the New York Times, back when they published interesting things, um, hired Palia or commissioned her to write a review knowing her to be a huge fan of Madonna's. Um, MTV had just dropped a uh, music video that Madonna had produced, but which was based on like SNM, right? Um, and they had deemed it too racy and they were like, well, okay, MTV will not show this video. Um, and I think they expected Polya to come in as a famous defender and lover of Madonna to come in and say, this was censorship, it's awful, right? Um, and instead, Polya wrote a typically, you know, <laughs> very fun to read uh, column praising the video as glorious pornography of the best sort, uh, truly erotic, and then closes by saying, of course this shouldn't be on MTV for children. What's wrong with you? <laughs> like, yeah, this is not, this is not a piece of mainstream art. This is something that should be seamy in a back alley and actually derives its, exactly its charge or frisson from being there. Mm -hmm. And this is something that belongs in the counterculture and not in front of children because it, it, they will find it when they get older, you know, if they're attracted to that side of life, they will find it. And this, I feel the same way actually about a lot of the LGBT, whatever issues they, the society should pr produce. And this is another word like abnormal. I'm going to now say normal society should produce a normal um, life script and, and vision of the good life. Um, but we shouldn't be hunting down people in the back alleys. Like we should have mm. a tolerance for, and in fact, I, I think that division helps both. Well, that division helps both sides yeah. of the division it, because now every counterculture has to be universally accepted. And that's what gives that flat, bland, corporatized feel to everything, right? Where even men parading down the street in assless chaps and a doggy harness is completely devoid of any kind of real eroticism. Because you're doing it in in front of kids walking down the street and like you're doing it in this very um, open mainstream way that is not only disturbing for the children and messes with their conception of what reality and the good and sexuality is, but also I, I refuse to believe that most of these people are even getting a rise out of it. The sex positive case for sex negativity, right? <laughs> that it isn't sexy unless it's a little bit marginalized. Yes. Yeah, no, I think that is probably true. And I think also that it's a, it's, I mean, it's, it's a difficult thing to advocate for partly because it's, a, it's not something that you can sort of construct. It's not something you can legislate for to say, we're going to, 
you know, we're going to sort of advise against this, but we're going to accept that people will sometimes do it. It was actually on a completely different subject, but there was a, a paper by um, Jonathan Sumption. Probably, I, I, so um, you may be aware the legal, the British legal scholar Jonathan Sumption, who's who's um, often uh, weighed in on on controversial ethical uh, medical ethics, and his position, for instance, on euthanasia, or was last time I read it, I don't know what he thinks now, is that we should forbid euthanasia, but we also shouldn't sort of aggressively pursue people when they break the law that's my position also yeah that that's that the the the, and it's a difficult one to legislate for obviously because you're saying the law is there but we also are not going to take the law that seriously and that's quite a difficult balance to strike and you know what I mean that actually for quite a long time I know that some people will be outraged about this that was basically the position on homosexuality at least in the UK well, that's that's what I was going to bring up. Is yeah, that, in the decades is, preceding legalization, to legislate. I think people naturally do this, right? So, prosecutors have a limited amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, for example, in in the U.S., um, the the case that created a constitutional right to sodomy um, is Lawrence v. Texas, mm-hmm. and uh, it it happened. I can't remember two thousand three or two thousand five. And you might say, how appalling! It struck down a Texas law that made homosexuality or homosexual sexual activity illegal uh, in 2005? Well, yes, it struck down the law, but in order to get the case, it was a friendly prosecutor prosecuting someone who a- it was asking to be prosecuted mm-hmm. in order to get the, the law off the books. In fact, I believe the last time any serious attempt to police the bedrooms of, of homosexual people um, was was not even in that private context at all. It was, you know, in in the seventies and eighties in New York City in public bars, right? Um, but they had to go out of their way. <laughs> they had to have a friendly prosecutor actually bring the case because nobody in Texas, no prosecutor in Texas in two thousand five, was interested in bringing a case against uh, somebody for private homosexual sex acts. It just was not. Uh, wasn't used. The statute was, in fact, only used um, in cases of of uh, statutory rape, mm. right? So it was an additional charge. The only way that the statute was used um, was an additional charge in statutory rape. Yeah. Um, so I think we we are quite uh, familiar with this concept. I mean, like the whole idea of prosecutorial discretion. Um, I I understand that it's quote unquote difficult to legislate, but we might be overestimating it. In other words, euthanasia was and remains in some states illegal. The number, but the number of people, I mean, unfortunately, if, if uh, people, most people at some point, you know, have an interaction with the end of life process, right? Um, with somebody that they love and the hospice care, I mean, it is not an unusual thing, uh, for example, for them to tell you, well, this much morphine will put her out of her pain, mm. you know, and that much she won't feel any pain any at all. <laughs> um, but it happened in a very like indirect way. And no, no prosecutor in the U S is, is going to, to go after that. What they will go after is the case where it's like Terry Shivo or it's, it's uh, something that is um, 
there's a disagreement in the family, for example. And in mm. those cases, I absolutely think we should err on the side of life, right? Yeah. And so I don't know. I, so that is very much my position. I, I think it should be illegal. I'm not interested in jailing a doctor for, you know, overprescribing morphine for someone who's suffering at the end of life. Like, I have no in interest of, in doing in that. The double effect kind of case. Yeah. Yeah. But once you put it in the mainstream and change the law, which is a statement about what we accept and what we don't, inevitably you get the, the, the point in Canada where like you go to a psychiatrist confessing suicidal thoughts and they refer you to, to the executioner. There's such an interesting film from the 60s that stars, um, the, uh, the title has escaped me for a moment, but it'll come to me. It stars Doug Bogard, um, who uh, was, it, it was a controversial role for him to take because he at the time was a very sort of prominent British actor. And he plays a, uh, a very well-regarded English barrister in London who is closeted and who is blackmailed for having a homosexual relationship. And there's in, 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 and the film is credited with being one of the things that kind of push the cultural needle towards decriminalization of homosexuality. But there's a really, really interesting scene where he is discussing with other closeted intellectual friends what the law ought to do. And they, they all say incredibly emphatically, you know, of course, this shouldn't be pushed on children. Of course, this shouldn't be considered sort of homosexuality shouldn't be considered mainstream what we're saying is just that we kind of want the law off our, ba our backs we don't want to be I mean I think it wasn't actually so much sort of raids on brothels um not brothels but like bathhouses or anything that they were concerned about they were concerned about blackmail um which actually was more to do with it still being stigmatized than anything to do with legislation but anyway um but it's so interesting that in that film which was at its time incredibly radical it's still they are appalled at the notion of anything other than heteronormativity, as it would later be described by second wave feminists. Um, and that's that film is from 60 years ago now. Um, similarly, this the, I, I didn't expect to go off on this tangent, but it is a really interesting one, like what actually were historical attitudes or recent historical attitudes towards homosexuality. Um, Oscar Wilde, the Oscar Wilde is so often understood now as a martyr to homophobia. What is less often remembered is how reluctant actually the legal establishment and the political establishment was to pursue Wilde legally. And the fact that he ended up having, he, he, he was so sort of provocative because he was the one who actually launched the libel, the libel case. Um, he, he wasn't just having a homosexual relationship with one man he was having he was he was he was buying sex from teenage rent boys you know like he 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 he, he tried like his absolute darndest basically to scandalize society and it actually took a very long time and took a lot of provocation for um for him to be convicted so like that i think there has <laughs> To understand the history as exclusively the like terrible legal persecution of gay men right up until 1967 or whatever it was is not quite right, even if there were, I'm sure, instances of that happening. And this is this challenge that, as you say, you know, how do you, 
how do you legislate around that kind of balance? So Naomi Wolf got humiliated Mm. uh, on the program for exactly that assumption, right? That Mm -hmm. in fact, even in those uh, cases when it was, when it was theoretically punishable by death, right? Um, That in fact, very, very, very few people were ever executed for this. Mm. Um, Thomas Jefferson famously wrote, uh, wrote about what, what moral laws need to remain in place, which again, somebody who is sort of famously small L liberal, um, not only for his day, but I think in, in a deep way that sort of maintains its liberality uh, throughout different um, different eras, which is why it's, it's funny. Uh, I, I think you can track the, track the American left and right, but based on which um, uh, between Hamilton and Jefferson, which side, which likes one at any given time. And then they <laughs> flip, right? So it used to be that Hamilton was bad because he liked the military and big business. And, <laughs> Um, and Jefferson was good because he was the champion of liberty. Um, and now it's Jefferson is bad because, uh, he owns slaves and, uh, Hamilton is great because we have a musical about him. He was an immigrant. <laughs> um, yeah. it's just so you can track the, the flipping yeah. back and forth and, and the selective, both selective understandings, right. Of, um, but but Thomas Jefferson wrote about this question, and he said, absolutely, we need to maintain capital punishment as the, the penalty for homosexuality. He said, basically, never enforced. And he acknowledged, like, it shouldn't be uh, enforced, but we need to maintain it. And it is a kind of an interesting idea. I don't know if it's true or not. Um, but he thought precisely because it's such an attractive possibility that if it's not heavily <laughs> stigmatized, uh, you'll have everybody, uh, everybody will be will be gay. Um that's a a revealing sentiment isn't it (laughs) (laughs) um but uh yeah i mean look the this is very similar i think the complicated nature of this of of exactly the societal prohibition and even legal prohibition of activity yet a certain level of tolerance for it um this is another huge objection i have to feminism which basically understands the relationship the social relationship between man and woman as one between oppressor and oppressed until very recently at least um i just don't think that's basically ever the relationship and they're extremely patriarchal societies that uh, i would certainly not want to live in um but there is an interdependence between men and women and the idea that women do not have power in traditional societies is insane um it's it isn't direct and public power on certain issues, but I always like to ask people, well, how do you think women got the vote from men? <laughs> if your, if your idea of these the sex relations is so much about this relationship and women were oppressed because they didn't have the vote, right? How do you think they got the vote? Do you think like, why did men voluntarily, did they just become enlightened one day and decide that, no, it's because women had power. <laughs> And they decided to exercise it to get the vote at some point, and they started publicly exercising that power. But um, I, I just I, I totally reject that construct of oppressor and oppressed. I mean, I just don't think it and, it. and if you think about the women you know from other eras, almost nobody says this about their grandmother, unless this is the one exception, unless they were in an abusive marriage, mm. right? But nobody says their grandmothers were oppressed, like directly. Going back to outliers, I mean, because that's the that's the big and difficult outlier 
and it's the one that Sarah Hader raised in our de- in, in the LA debate last week, you know, you can make a very strong argument for saying, yes, that women have this kind of parallel system of power and that there is a, you know, they have the power of the, they, the, the hand that rocks the cradle, et cetera, you know, um, and that, and that men and women have an independent interdependency and a complementarity to their roles and their temperaments and all of this, you know, you can, you can make that strong argument, but then the counter you always get is, but what about the woman who gets beaten up by her husband, her tyrannical husband? And in a society where she doesn't really have a, a separate legal identity from him and she can't own property and she can't retain custody of her children and all that kind of stuff, that woman is extraordinarily vulnerable and the physical vulnerability of women is such that she also can't physically defend herself. And that's true. That's the big outlier. And it, it's, 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 it's a minority, but we don't exactly know how small a minority it is. There are some societies where domestic violence is very common. Um, Interestingly, there's lots of historical controversy over the extent to which in sort of early modern English history, domestic violence was common or not. I, I, I think the answer is that we just don't really know, except to say that I think there are different types of domestic violence as well. And that, that the man who gets aggressive while drunk is different from the highly controlling abuser. But anyway, that's a, that's a tangent. Um what some feminists, what many feminists say is basically that because of those abusive exceptions, down with marriage. Right. And and I, I agree with you. I think it's the hardest objection mm. um, because this is a case in which the exceptions exist in such an intolerable state that they require redress mm-hmm. in a way that's different from what we were just talking about, like about, you know, sneaking in the back alley. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. And so for that reason, I think it's a powerful objection. but. You know, let's start from the premise that given any sort of power, people will abuse it to some, you know, some percentage of people will abuse it. That The guy who doles out soup in the mess hall is a soup Nazi. So, you know, he's going to give more to his friends and less to his enemies. And yeah. um, and so this, this does go back to human nature. And, and so I would put into this category, uh, you know, there are ways women can abuse their power as well. They can't yeah. beat up, they can't beat up their husbands, but there are certainly tyrannical wives well normally women and um, women are actually more likely to use their power tyrannically over their children when you see women doing horrendous things within the family it's normally towards their children but yes they can also be they ah the women have their own mommy problems and <laughs> women have their own uh modes of aggression definitely true so you know there are going to be people who abuse power um when given it and so this is something that the one a way in which men abuse their power, um, I think. And the, here, I it, it depends on some of that that very hazy statistics um, that you yourself say that you're just uncertain. I don't know what percentage or how large a problem this is. Um, I I will say that a strong sort of chivalric code is also dependent on accepting sex differences. Mm-hmm. In in other words, I, I don't know that there's a strong argument against domestic violence uh, if we don't accept the differences between the sexes. Like, for example, mm-hmm. and I, this is a really good question. What what does domestic violence in that really bad sense that we all think about as bad look like between two gay men? Mm-hmm. Right. Or is it fine for them to just have a fistfight? Maybe maybe it's a good couple's resolution. You know what I mean? Maybe when they're really mad at each other, they should just fight. I mean, I, you know what I mean? 
it's not the same thing, but it relies on exactly that massive power imbalance. And, and another thing I would say is that in all ways of, of sort of honing masculinity and the aggressive impulse, of course, uh, men, men should be policing each other and men should mm. be teaching each other to control the power that they have in, in a virtuous and productive way. Um, and I suspect one of the many ways in which fathers are failing their children is that. Now, I'm not, mm. I'm not, you can't blame everything on your parents, right? You know, at some point, you're making your own decisions here and you're morally responsible for them. But I wonder, uh, like other forms of criminality, I wonder how much fatherlessness is related to how much of it we have in society. The, actually, the lack of a uplifting masculine script in society has to do with the, the sort of prominence of that. I, I would, what I would say is there's, there's probably some percentage of domestic violence and, and men who behave this way, no matter what society does in the same way that there is some percentage of, of you know, rape always, mm. it'll always be with us, but I would almost have the opposite instinct, uh, than some of the feminists seem to have about it. Meaning that, they see this abuse and they would want to demasculize men because they see it as an outgrowth of dangerous masculinity. Mm -hmm. And I would say the opposite in, in the sense that I see it as a disordered form of masculinity that may become more common when there isn't a strong alternative for masculine identity or role model or behavior. So I, I have the opposite instinct, but again, I don't really have the data to back that up because like you said, I don't know how common it was. Mm. Um, and of course there's a huge difference between, so obviously there was a time where the social norm was you could slap your wife, um, which is, I'm not, to be clear, I'm not in favor of pe people slapping their wives, uh, but that's a very different thing than an out of control use of violence. Um, which I don't believe was ever really tolerated, at least in America. I mean, there are cases in the 19th century, um, cases of divorce granted on that basis, where back when divorce was so difficult to obtain that you had to go to the state legislature to get a special writ to dissolve your marriage. Um, and most of the marriages dissolved are on that basis. So yeah, there, I don't know that there was a tolerance forever for, in at least in America, for like actually beating your wife as opposed to swatting your <laughs> wife yeah no I think that there are a lot of different things that come under the banner of domestic violence and it's not I don't think it's very helpful to elide them I think for instance of a British politician um who recently had to sort of do a mea culpa in public because she confessed to having thrown a phone charger at her boyfriend during an argument not even a phone, a phone charger, so even flimsier, okay? And um, she, she, as a good progressive, having sort of admitted to having done this, she had to say, yes, I'm, I myself am, am a domestic abuser. That's just ridiculous. Right. Sorry, so that's like... <laughs> well, that's, okay. where, well, that's, that's where you have to go if you don't base it on this chivalric difference between men and women, right? Yes. You have to say yes. any any violent impulse carried out to anyone in the domestic context is wrong and therefore like an enraged five foot one girlfriend who throws a phone charger is like you know lock her up 
Yeah, yeah, and that's <laughs> it, and yeah, and that's put under the same. I mean, it's it's the same sort of slippage we see elsewhere, isn't it? In the sort of um, progressive vocabulary, where, where it, trauma, all of this stuff ends up just becoming more and more expansive over time, um, almost like euphemism treadmill. I think also that there is a difference between like like the most disturbing story that I have ever heard, not because it's particularly grotesque in terms of violence, but a, a story of domestic violence that I was told about when I went on some training program when I was working in the women's sector was a man who would hide a 20p piece somewhere in the house every day and task his wife with cleaning the house so thoroughly until she found it. And if he didn't come home and was sort of greeted with this 20p piece, which he'd made identifiable in some way, um, then he'd beat her. So like that is an example of really... that. That man is psychopathic, right? Like right, that's tyrannical. Clearly, yeah, that's that's extraordinarily levels of tyranny which do which exist but are not massively normal. Um, and then there's the, you know, there's a whole lot of space between that and throwing a phone charger, and it's not that helpful to describe them all in the same terms. And it's also, I don't think, it helpful to describe them in sex-neutral terms. I'm sure it is true you know, that one argument you will get from some anti-feminists is that actually women dish it out just as much as men do. It's just that women dish it out, that women being smaller means it has sort of less impact. So um, a woman who hits a man is just much less likely to land him in the emergency room. So so it becomes kind of statistically invisible. To which I say, okay, but that's a meaningful difference. Yeah, that's (laughs) kind of the whole game. Yeah. That's the point. Yeah. Uh, If you're so much less likely to be murdered by your partner just by virtue of your strength differences, that matters. Yeah, I mean, I I think uh, there is a legitimate conversation on the whatever super anti-feminist red pill writer whatever about how much violence is a man uh, sort of expected to endure without defending himself. Mm. I think that's a different question. Um, but on on the equivalence, I think that this is a, a stupid equivalence, whether it's coming from the left or the right. It, there is no equivalence between the violence of someone who fundamentally cannot do serious physical damage um, in the same way there's no, and this is a, a good one for you recently, since I heard you have this controversy in the, in the public about the, the bully dog, right? Like in the same way that a chihuahua biting you is not the same thing. As an XL bully. Yeah. <laughs> like yes. a, a chihuahua being aggressive is funny. Yeah. I Which is generally, I think, the attitude that men, yeah. <laughs> yes. men should should take towards women throwing phone chargers is to laugh at them. Um, yeah. Which is not to say, obviously, that women can't do evil in other ways. They, they clearly Oh, can. absolutely. But um, not but in yeah, that way. That women are not dangerous in that way. No. Very rare exceptions. Which no, is why when it, women women do violence, they poison their husbands. Right. Yeah. The, there's, there's a brand of anti-feminism, which I find by far the least convincing, which basically tries to represent men and women as being, it's this brand of feminism that says that actually there's a secret epidemic of like women raping men or a secret epidemic of, of women, you know, beating their husbands and stuff. And I think one, gosh, that's been well hidden, like in terms of things like data from the morgue, you know, which is quite hard to, to misunderstand. Um, but also I just, I just so, it, 
even though that's generally an argument advanced by people who would not describe themselves as progressive, it seems to have the same kind of brain worms origin to it. And this idea that all of these differences between the sexes are very superficial. It's an argument from our presumption of equality. Yeah. Which is simply not true with regard to women. I mean, the, the most basic definition of feminism that I usually use when I describe myself as an anti-feminist because it includes, because there's, of course, there's this endless um, definitional problem, right? Mm. Uh, is the political, social, and cultural equality, I think is the three, I can't remember, um, equality of the sexes, right? Uh, and this is both, at least was the definition of feminism um, in Merriam-Webster Dictionary, uh, it's also the definition used by Beyonce uh, <laughs> in her song. So it has wide purchase. And I feel like most people, the vast majority of people who would call themselves feminists would agree with that statement. And that's why I call myself an anti-feminist, because I don't. I don't think it's possible to have the political, social, economic equality of the sexes. Um, and even, furthermore, even I'm not even... Opportunity. I, furthermore, I don't think that that's a good thing. Like, mm. as in, I neither think it's possible, nor do I think we should strive to get as close to it as as, as possible. Um, I do not seek that kind of equality with men. Of course, there are some ways in which I think we're equal. Um, you know, I I, I think we are uh, all human. There are certain dignities and rights attendant to being human, but I don't think it's possible to be equal with men and not just on this mass basis of like, oh, we're going to see statistically different choices over time, but in a, a deep and individual way, I don't think it's possible to be equal with men. And I don't think it's desirable for us to try. Yeah. I mean, I'm minded to agree. I, I, I mean, I, I, my favorite example of this is, you know, the idea that men and women should have equal maternity rights is absurd because Which has to be forced. Yeah, so men either either it means denying women them or giving them to men when they have no use of them, and, and like that's clearly an absurdity. It does become more difficult when we're talking about things like um, the franchise. You know, I I uh, I don't want to repeal the Nineteenth Amendment, and I don't I don't think that you do either. Although, correct me if I'm wrong about that. I so I've been asked this question quite a bit and the answer i give is not satisfying to anyone okay. <laughs> um but it is it is related to what i said earlier about the vote um meaning that women were able to get the vote through means of other power which by the way women were voting in america from the beginning just in certain states and not in others and mm -hmm. the story of women getting the vote at least in the united states is very much a story of regional power the west was getting very powerful because of course predominantly men went West and if and, and so uh, they they actually the Western states did give women the franchise quite early when it was just frontier. Um, anyway, there's a, there's a whole a whole power balance and other considerations, and but it was very tied with the temperance movement. I simply don't think that it was the break that people think it is, and I, I mm -hmm. between women not having the vote and women having the vote um, did not was not a sea change in the position and relative power of men and women. Um, and for that reason, I also should like the, the sort of super red pill, right? And like, 
white because a lot of them they identify oh, okay we gave women the vote and it's been a disaster ever since mm. and um to which i say yes but the conditions the power that women had to get the vote that also was influencing politics they were also able to get prohibition passed mm. right so women have always influenced politics they influenced politics before they had the vote and they influenced politics in a more direct way after but i don't see it as this like breaking point uh the way that it seems so i'm not like in favor of repealing the 19th i also am not like uh i didn't think i don't think women were politically oppressed before the 19th amendment um mm. I think it's always, as always, between men and women, it's, it's a much more complicated dance of motivations and uh, interests and um, love and fear, uh, as we just saw about domestic violence. And it's, it's a much more interdependent story than women had no political power, then they got the vote, and now they have political power. I want to go into the paywalled bit now because we've just we've, we, we're coming up to an hour, so this is a perfect spot, I think, to end um, for the free subscribers. And the thing I want to talk to you about is um, this tweet that you did recently, which I thought was really insightful, and also reminded me of Brian Kaplan's recent book, um, uh, "Don't Be a Feminist," because Brian came on the show recently to talk about it. Something on the lines of what feminism means in practice, like the best, the the, the simplest way of really understanding how it works functionally, is it's the defense of the interests of older, childless, single women. I thought that was really interesting and, I want, and I'm going to talk about it in the paywall section. But for everyone else who's listening, um, where can they find more of your work and particularly your own podcast? Um, yeah, I have a podcast called High Noon um, where I have interesting people like Louise on to talk about interesting things. Um, and they can find my work and that of my colleagues at iwf.org. And you can find me on Twitter at, um, well, my ad is Inez Felcher, which is my uh, maiden name. Back in the day, you couldn't change your handle without losing your blue check. But now it's, but you can type in Inez Stepman. It's easier to spell. Awesome. Thank you, Inez. Thank you so much for watching that episode of Maiden Mother Matriarch and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. If you want to hear bonus content, an extra 20, 30 minutes of conversation with the guest, maybe a little bit more personal, a little bit less filtered, then you can go to my Substack at louiseperry.substack.com where you can sign up for extended episodes and also bonus episodes. And you can also access our chat community. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give the show a try. Please also spread the word, tell people that you know who you think might like it to give it, to give it a shot. Um, the word of mouth effect is really valuable, so we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, watching, and supporting what we're doing. <laughs>